Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. A brief side note before we get started, there was an episode that was meant to come out on Wednesday about the Bear Flag Revolt, but that was pushed back to next Monday uh, due to some personal circumstances this week that delayed its recording. So please be patient. I know you'll love that episode. It'll be out next Monday. But today we have a special episode because I have a wonderful interview for you. My interview today is with Brian DeLay. Brian DeLay received his PhD from Harvard University in 2004. He taught for five years at the University of Colorado at Boulder before taking a position at UC Berkeley, where now he is an associate professor of history. Uh, He's written many books and articles, uh, including a U.S. history textbook called Experience History, um, as well as the book that uh, kind of precipitated this podcast that came out in 2008 called The War of a Thousand Deserts, Indian Raids and the U.S.-Mexican War. Uh, This book won many prizes uh, from different scholarly organizations. We talk about transnational history, borderlands, the Mexican-American War, and so much more. Again, as always, you can support us uh, financially on Patreon by making a contribution, or you can give us, more simply, a rating and review. Uh, Both of these things matter immensely, and they really help to make this podcast sustainable. All right, now let's go meet Brian. I got interested in your work, and I was—I've been thinking about this whole concept of transnational for a while, in part because of the conversations about climate change. Uh, so a few years ago, there was um, there was a fire kind of on the Canadian border um, of Glacier Park, and then I forget the name of the a, adjacent uh, national park in Canada, um, and then both of these. Uh, you know, f- fire teams in e- the respective countries had to kind of coordinate because obviously the fire was happening in, uh, across borders, right? Um, yeah. And it feels like a lot of the challenges that we have uh, in our world um, are going to be transnational. Um, and then it also feels like when we study history, uh, things can be compartmentalized into, with, into national narratives. And so particularly in K-12, which is what I teach, you know, things are... You know, I mean, there's an effort with the new standards and making things, uh, talking about encounters. I don't know if you've heard these terms, encounters, or uh, there's, there's another uh, term that they're using to basically mean, let's stop looking at just national history. Yeah. So right. when, you, when you talk about transnational history, uh, what do you mean? And um, how do you think by looking at transnational history might understand kind of the Mexican-American war period a little better? Yeah. Well, it's a great question, and I, I can see a little bit of what you're talking about in my own kids' curriculum. So I have, a, I have a, um, a freshman in high school and a senior in high school, and I can see a little bit of this shift that you're, you're identifying in what they're talking about. Um, and I think it's all to the good. You know, so professional history as an academic discipline, as it emerged in the 19th century and was really kind of refined in the 20th century as a coherent Uh, academic enterprise was built very explicitly um, and deliberately around nation states. Um, You know, so most history was history of the nation state. And um, that focus is still deeply embedded in the DNA of history as an enterprise in in the academy. Um, And it's not just the academy, right? You see it in K through 12. And there's, there's a, there's a, a sense in which, um, this is intuitive and makes sense. We do, after all, 
most of us inhabit nation states. The, it used to be that the, um, the, the main way to transcend national histories was diplomatic history. Okay. And, um, you know, that's venerable. People have been doing that for a really long time. But, and, and the best um, diplomatic history really was multilingual, multi-archival. You know, if you were doing France and, and the U.S., you were in archives in France and in the U.S. So um, that stuff is still important and, and, um, and done well by lots of different historians. But it's also pretty high level, right? So almost by definition, we're talking about governing elites. There were lots of other kinds of people that transacted business or moved or schemed or otherwise were active in, across multiple nation states. And so I think at its heart, that's what transnational history is as an enterprise, is it's an effort to understand people, goods, processes, stories, struggles that transcend national boundaries. Um, and it's really blown up in the last... Um, 20 years, I'd say. So much so, in fact, that you don't hear all that much about it anymore as a deliberate enterprise, because I think it's kind of won a lot of the battles, right? Now it's not so new and unusual for historians to try to do this. It's just been demonstrated to be a fruitful way to approach history. There's also this very practical aspect of it. Because history has been organized around nation states, um, a lot of that territory has been in some ways mined out to use a kind of Western metaphor, right? That the, the really intriguing problems, the new stories, the exciting new uh, kind of questions that one can ask. Um, I think that there's a lot better hunting after those sorts of things at the intercies of na nation states, precisely because borders obscure these processes, right? Because we have for so long organized our knowledge around nation states. So in that sense, it's just a very practical kind of um, uh, uh, injunction that, you know, if you're a historian and you're looking for interesting problems, check out a borderland because you're liable to find interesting problems there that have been hidden from sight because, you know, we've organized our, our uh, understanding of the past around countries. Yeah, so, can, I, can I pause yeah, you real quick? Please. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it feels like, you know, it kind of ties in with kind of this concept of intersectionality and uh, interdisciplinary work. And it, it, it seems like it's just the kind of logical conclusion of thinking outside of your extreme specialization. Um, you know, I, there's this great television show that I watched recently called Taste the Nation. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's on Hulu and it's, uh, it's a food show. Uh, but uh, the host uh, goes to Juarez um, and El Paso and just kind of goes back and forth across the border and shows how, you know, seeing those cities as different cities actually doesn't really make sense uh, because many of the people that live in Juarez are, walk across the border every day to go to work in El Paso. Yeah. Yes. And so this quote unquote, these different cities are really, you know, uh, this boundary between them is artificial. And it's something that's been created. So anyway, I, I, I like yeah. what you're saying. And I think, I think it, I, you know, with America and, and what we're, what we're dealing with right now, I think thinking outside of those concepts of one or the other, the dualism probably is something we need to approach. Yeah. Deal with. I agree. Yeah. Not only as historians, right. But, uh, as, as citizens, people, as people. <laughs> um, and so how does this relate to the Mexican American war? How, how can we maybe alter our, perspective when thinking about that period? Well, um, so wars are interesting 
topics historically within this framework that I've just laid out, this national framework, right? Because by definition, histories of international wars are about more than one country, right? But um, histories of wars have also been in some ways kind of the most nationalistic histories that, that we've produced over the, you know, whatever, the last century or whatever. Um, and so for uh, the vast majority of scholarship that's been written about the U.S.-Mexican War was written either by American historians that are writing about the war fundamentally and kind of explicitly and unapologetically from an American perspective, mm -hmm. uh, a way of approaching the study of the conflict that made a lot of sense given how history worked as an enterprise for a very long time. Um, and again, here, the best diplomatic historians in both countries did spend quite a lot of time in the archives of the other country and really tried to know something about the people on the other side of the border. Um, but that was, um, you know, something that was reserved to a pretty narrow spectrum of political elites, more or less. So... Transnational history um, as an enterprise is interested in lots of different kinds of people, uh, including people who do not have um, significant institutional political power. Um, and, you know, in the case of the U.S.-Mexican War, once um, you begin thinking about uh, the kinds of actors that may be relevant to a conflict um, that is being waged over this immense um, space in North America, and you're no longer strictly only thinking about the conflict from the, from the perspective of one country, or strictly thinking about um, elite policymakers, then there's this obvious question that raises itself. And that is that, well, if this war was fought for a vast region that was almost totally controlled by native people, were native people relevant to the conflict at all? And that was really my starting question in my own work. Um, and that was very much a kind of question that was born out of this new approach to transnational history. And so I was interested not only in the ways in which Mexicans and Americans and Texians were moving back and forth across different national borders, but I was interested in the ways in which indigenous people who controlled most of the territory that Mexico and the United States are going to come to blows over I was interested in the ways in which they were relevant to this looming international conflict. So that's the kind of thing I think that that's the kind of question that comes out of this more of a transnational approach. Okay. So yeah, that that's definitely helpful because that's not really, I mean, it, if, if you're talking about purely a national perspective, they indigenous people, just the way they're, you know, they were treated, they're not in that, that conversation. Um, and I, you know, I want to talk for a second about, uh, conspiracy theories, um, you know, because I, I, I think uh, I think conspiracy theories get a bad rap um, because many times the people that are putting forth conspiracy theories uh, also happen to be crazy. Um, but I, <laughs> but I think that um, you know, particularly an obsession for mine for a long time was the USS Maine um, and the Spanish American War, um, and I, you know, it, it and you know. When you're thinking about history, you can, you know, sometimes things just happen. They're accidents. Uh, sometimes people stumble into things. Um, but it doesn't seem like the Mexican-American War was something that was stumbled into. It, it feels when you look at history, um, 
and you can read into it what you want, but it, it feels like it was, it was inevitable. Uh, so I, I guess my question is, do you believe the war with Mexico was inevitable? Um, kind of in, in this kind of like, not really fate, but like part of a, you know, a, kind of a subplot, a plan? Um, or do you, or do you see kind of history as a series of uh, kind of not, not accidents, but uh, uh, precipitating events that no one anticipated? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, my own view is that the U.S.-Mexican War was not inevitable. Um, and there's different ways that you could try to defend that position. Um, so let me just, I'll just throw out a couple ways in which I think the, the whole story could have turned out very differently. Um, for example, James K. Polk. Uh, James K. Polk was basically a washed up politician in 1844. Um, uh, it was, ex no one in the national political scene would have expected him to become a viable political candidate. Uh, and I won't get into all of the complicated reasons why he did become one. Um, but it had to do with just with a lot of kind of a democratic party, um, intrigue more or less that, that, that catapulted him into that position. And once he was nominated for that, uh, once he secured the democratic nomination and he was running against, uh, Martin Van Buren, you know, one of the. Oh, um, uh, pardon me, let me back up. In order to get the Democratic nomination, he had to defeat Martin Van Buren, which was one of the, he was one of the most famous politicians in the country, former president. Um, uh, and it was extremely unlikely that Polk, who again, his career had been basically washed up by this point, was going to be able to defeat this guy, but he does. So that was a contingency right there. Then once he gets the nomination, he is running against the most famous politician in the country, second only to Andrew Jackson, and that's Henry Clay. And people have been waiting decades for Henry Clay to become president. And everyone's sort of like, well, this is his time. It's finally going to happen. Uh, and remarkably, he ends up beating Henry Clay. And he ends up beating Henry Clay by the narrowest of margins. He, if, if Polk had lost 5,000 votes in New York State, uh, Henry Clay would have become president. Now, does that matter? Well, you know, Henry Clay equated the annexation of Texas with a dishonorable war against Mexico. And so he says, you know, I, I, at this moment, I would not support the annexation of Texas because it would bring on a war with Mexico and, and they would be right to want to go to war with us. Um, and incidentally, that had been the position of Martin Van Buren too. So um, through a series of contingent events, you had this extremely um, confrontational, expansionistic, nationalistic candidate, kind of dark horse candidate come and um, become president, precipitates the uh, annexation of Texas, um, and then engineers a war with Mexico. Though all of that was something that could have easily not have happened. So um, that's, that's, you know, one set of contingencies. Then, you know, even once the war is underway, once Polk engineers this conflict with Mexico, uh, lots of things could have happened to make it turn out differently. Um, the United States did not have to win that war. It, it went into the war with a lot of advantages. But, you know, as we all know in our own time, wars are deeply contingent events. Uh, the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan with immense advantages, right? Um, so there were a lot of advantages and a lot of reasons to expect the United States would do well. But the United States also got very lucky. Uh, and there were these moments when, um, you know, things were, were going in ways that uh, Polk was totally shocked by. I mean, Polk totally expected the Mexican government to um, surrender as soon as he won a few big victories in the North, but they refused. 
And he was forced to open up this other front and send General Win Winfield Scott to invade central Mexico. And when that happened, um, Santa Ana took the opportunity to attack um, uh, Zachary Taylor, who was up there in the north with a diminished force. And Santa Ana narrowly lost that battle. Uh, had he won that battle and annihilated Taylor's forces, it would have changed the entire political dynamic of the war. So all of this is to say that I think there were so many contingencies that uh, produced the outcome that we ended up with. Um, and I don't think it was inevitable, but I do think asking that question about inevitability is a great question to ask because what it forces us to do um, as students of history is to go back and identify those moments that we think really mattered and ask ourselves, okay, why does this moment matter, right? And think about what could have happened and why things happened the way they did happen. So it's a great question to ask, but in this particular case, I do not think the war with Mexico was inevitable. You know, I think it's something I talk about a lot on the show, which is this concept that was used for a long time in writing history and just thinking about life, this concept of providence or fate, you know, this kind of underlying movement in one direction. Uh, oftentimes the people promulgating these ideas are the people that uh, have some vested interests. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it's something that uh, a lot of us look at history and just kind of see it as a march in a particular direction. Um, and so I think what you're saying is important um, because it does go to show that certain things are arbitrary um, and that something being one particular way uh, doesn't necessarily mean it was meant to be that way. Um, and so there's lots of conversations we could have about, you know, religion's role. But anyway, let's let's go on to the next topic, which, you know, I'm kind of curious your perspective, which is, um, you know, we just recently had an episode on Jedediah Smith. Uh, who's kind of an early explorer trapper. Um, and he, you know, uh, he, he is this amazing character uh, with an amazing story. And I think for a long time, our culture um, has been obsessed with kind of these uh, explorers, these, you know, Christopher Columbus types. Um, oftentimes we don't know the actual history of what they did, but, you know, we kind of have this, um, you know, this kind of frontier imagination. Um, of, of these people just roughing it and, you know, going out on their own, discovering new vistas and places. Um, but I think what we learn is that oftentimes uh, these explorers are not there just for exploration. They're either there for profit, they're there for political reasons. And so I guess what I'm, the question I want to ask is, uh, should we look at some of these early trappers and explorers that went west as more as agents of colonization or just purely as capitalists trying to make money? Yeah, another really good question. Um, figures like Smith, and there's a, you know, a lot of people like that, um, capture our imagination for all kinds of good reasons in the sense that you know, they led just absolutely remarkable lives, um, did things that were thrilling and dangerous and sometimes crazy, um, uh, sometimes abhorrent, right? Um, but, but always um, extremely interesting. And the, it's easy to look at them and be so captured by the romance and the outrage and the adventure and the astonishment that clings to their lives that we um, uh, can kind of see them as larger than life, unique figures that were kind of operating under their own mysterious forces. Um, and, you know, certainly there is 
I don't want to say that there was no allure to adventuring in the West and the kind of remarkable chances that um, a guy like Jedediah Smith took in the West over his career before he was killed. Um, there clearly were, but it's also the case that pretty much without exception, these were people who were out there looking for profit, right? They were, they were after their own vision of economic independence and pursuing economic um, opportunities you know, economic opportunities where they wouldn't be beholden to anybody. Uh, and, um, uh, but nonetheless, they were seeking economic opportunities. So I don't know, I don't know exactly if I call them capitalists necessarily. I mean, you know, they weren't very often people as individuals who had a huge amount of money. Um, they were certainly entrepreneurs and they were, um, you know, looking out for economic opportunities in the far West. Um, but I think from my perspective that at a further level of remove, when you get away from the kind of gravitational pull of the romance of their stories, then what you can see is that they are expressions of this powerful dynamic that's at work in Western North America, um, starting, you know, in the 18 teens or 1820s and going through, you know, the 1850s or so. Um, and that is the phenomenon where, um, First, New Spain and then Mexico has a very tenuous grasp on its farthermost northern claims in North America and has plenty of other massive crises that it has to deal with further south. So it just is not able to govern the far north. Um, and so that it produces a sort of a vacuum that enables men like Jedediah Smith to go in there in violation of Spanish law initially. Uh, and then in violation of various kinds of Mexican <laughs> regulations and laws to, uh, you know, to trap and pursue his own economic activities. And what they are is they are kind of exponents of American economic energy. Um, and this is an economic energy that is reshaping the whole of northern Mexico and actually kind of inexorably reorienting California, New Mexico, Texas prior to the Texas Rebellion, reorienting these places economically away from Mexico and toward the United States. And, and guys like Jedediah Smith are um, exponents of that and kind of expressions of that. How, how do you think the government would have viewed uh, people like Jedediah Smith, kind of with just, uh, you know, uh, kind of just leaving them to be autonomous? Do you think there's some kind of uh, uh, the government either being in support of, of kind of exploring in, in the West, you know, even though they were crossing borders and boundaries? Um, so you mean the U S government, right? Yeah. The U S government. How, yeah. how, how did they view people like this? Yeah. Well, I think it really did depend, um, depended on the administration. It depended on the diplomatic context. Um, when they, when, when figures like this produced headaches for American diplomats and problems with Mexico and threatened to, um, undermine other goals that the United States had vis-a-vis -vis Mexico, then they were considered to be, you know, huge, problems um, or, or, or at least, you know, grade A annoyances that, um, uh, you know, the U.S. would just kind of wish they would, these guys would get killed by grizzly bears or something and go away. Um, but in the broader picture, I think that most American policymakers who were interested in the West recognized that figures like this uh, had long played an important role in American territorial expansion. And um, they could even simultaneously sort of denounce them to their Mexican counterparts when it was convenient to do so, but still believe that it was in the long-term interests of American uh, territorial expansion 
to have figures like this out there traversing the West, sending back reports, sending maps sometimes, making strategic relationships that would be helpful and handy if and when the United States ever did invade this place. Um, and, you know, maybe the most fundamental thing that figures like this were capable of doing, or at least helping, was just undermining Mexican, first Spanish and then Mexican control of these places, which gave the United States the leverage to say, wouldn't you really rather just sell this place to us? You know, I mean, look at all the headaches. You can hardly even keep this place under control. You know, I mean, we can take it off your hands and re relieve you of these headaches. So I think by and large, although occasionally they could be inconvenient, by and large, the United States government appreciated that these guys were indirectly helping um, uh, the course of American expansion. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the the issues in in, you know, quote unquote, West Florida, uh, before Florida was fully annexed by the United States. You know, you have these groups causing problems and the Spanish government's like, oh, are you going to take care of this? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, these are just, these are just American citizens, you know, doing, doing their thing. I mean, it, it feels like it's kind of uh, just this, uh, you know, the inevitability of it, it, you know, just kind of allows them to, to just ignore it in some way. Right? Yeah, I think that's a very uh, apt observation. Um, and in fact, Mexicans made that same observation in the 1830s and 1840s. They said, you know, look what they're doing, they being the United States. You know, they are doing the same thing now in Texas that they did in Florida, right? They, they you know, extravagantly complain about the fact that settlers, their own settlers are leaving their country and moving into another country, in this case, Mexico, in the first case, Spain, um, when in fact they're celebrating this the entire time because they know that these people are going to cause the kinds of problems that are going to provoke the sorts of crises that are going to end up forcing uh, either Spain or then Mexico to surrender these territories. Um, so they looked to Florida as the precedent and they thought it was really ominous and dangerous. But, you know, just like any country, um, Mexico is a big, diverse place. And while there were some Mexican um, figures in government that said these sorts of things and said, we need to watch out, we, we shouldn't be inviting all these people into Texas. There were plenty of others that said, we don't have a choice. If we don't bring these people in from Missouri and wherever else into Texas, then um, we're never going to be able to populate it and uh, we're never going to be able to develop it. And then it will absolutely eventually fall into the hands of the United States. So it's a gamble, but it's a gamble we have to take. Yeah. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. Can you talk about, and I, you know, I've recently learned it's Navajo, not Navajo. Uh, can you talk about the Comanche Wars with Mexico and kind of what role those those conflicts played in Mexico's military decline? Because I'm sure that contributed as well, uh, you know, to set the stage for the Mexican-American War. Yeah, I certainly think it did. Um, this is, to my mind, you know, one of the most important contingencies, getting back to your earlier question. So um, I could definitely talk way longer than you want me to on this. So let me try, I'm going to try to compress it as much as I can. Um, the basic story is that New Spain until the sort of late 18th century, early 19th century had um, over the period of decades worked out a kind of more or less stable relationship with the powerful native peoples that controlled what we now call the Southwest. Uh, this was, you know, Apaches, Comanches, Navajos, others, Utes. Um, and that 
after Mexican independence in 18, beginning in 1810, the independence movement and the, and the final um, uh, success of the independence movement in 1821, things began to um, degrade this relationship between the governing authorities in Mexico City and the, these native powers on the northern plain, on the southern plains and in the southwest. And long story short, that collapses into large-scale violence by the early 1830s. And that violence just gets worse and worse and worse through the 1830s, 18, early 1840s, all the way up to the eve of the U.S.-Mexican War, to the point where uh, in you know various years, you'll have dozens of large campaigns where uh, Comanche and Kiowa warriors by the dozens or by the hundreds, sometimes as many, more than a thousand people, riding south and in invading armies um, and traversing, you know, five, seven, eight Mexican states, robbing uh, ranches and haciendas and towns, stealing horses, stealing mules, kidnapping people, um, and, and killing people. And uh, Mexican authorities tried to do the same thing to their indigenous allies, or pardon me, enemies. And so what happens in the 1830s and 1840s is that the, this huge swath of northern Mexico descends into this, this really horrific period of, of violence. And the United States is keenly interested in this. Um, it's interested in this rhetorically because this is about the time that they begin paying attention to Mexico um, as an object of, of interest and, you know, as a kind of a, a, a territory that they're interested in, in, in trying to seize land from. Um, and they used these Indian conflicts and conflicts with native peoples in order to kind of develop a discourse that says, well, there's a racial hierarchy in North America, um, and the Anglo-American is at the very top of it. Um, native peoples are near the bottom, uh, but Mexicans are even lower than native peoples. Um, uh, and, you know, the evidence A for this, uh, this, this, this hierarchy is the fact that the Mexicans are falling backwards before these savage Indian raids all across northern Mexico. The whole country is a shambles. And um, they use that discourse both to denigrate Mexicans and to justify the invasion of Mexico in 1846 and 1847. And they tell themselves and they tell their countrymen and the press that, you know, we're going to be doing Mexico a favor because we're going to go in there, we're going to conquer the corrupt Mexican government and their corrupt army, and then we're going to save the innocent Mexican people from these savage raiding Indians. Um, so these conflicts really matter in terms of how Americans come to talk about and think about Mexicans in these fateful years before the war. And they really matter practically because de facto Mexico has to fight two wars at the same time, right? It has to fight on the one hand, it has to fight these intensifying conflicts with a variety of different indigenous nations. And it has to try to fight the United States military at the same time. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it's not capable of successfully fighting both these wars at the same time. So I don't think that the U.S.-Mexican War, um, it might not have happened, and it certainly would never have, 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 have unfolded and ended the way that it did had it not been for the actions of all of these different indigenous nations who are pursuing their own objectives, economic and political objectives in these decades and in the process, you know, profoundly shaped this landmark geopolitical event in North America. And that's, you know, we could, we could tie that into to the, uh, you know, kind of the, the westward and, and the genocides that happened, you know, whether it's, you know, after this period or after the Civil War, um, as westward expansion gets into full swing, right, uh, with, uh, you know, 
And I actually, this is kind of a, a strange thing about me um, personally. I'm actually a somewhat direct descendant of Kit Carson. Uh, wow. And uh, it's not a family history that I'm excited about sharing. I guess I'm sharing it on a podcast, so it's about as public as it can be. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems like uh, that what you're describing is kind of like the ideological ancestry of that uh, kind of movement uh, to, to wipe out Native people in the West. Well, I certainly think that white supremacy um, is a precondition to the sorts of genocides and genocidal uh, language and um, genocidal um, campaigns that, that unfold in the West um, and elsewhere in Eastern North America before the U.S.-Mexican War. So, so racism plays a really important role in those things, for sure. Um, and uh, the, you know, it, it, it really is in this period, in the Jacksonian period, that we see the advent of what um, you know, what we think of as kind of modern pseudoscientific racism um, that purportedly had the backing of the most cutting edge science at the, of the day and, uh, you know, uh, seemingly legitimate scientific enterprises like phrenology, um, all of which, you know, very conveniently um, seem to indicate that Anglo-Americans were uh, uh, made by God to overrun and inherit the whole earth and all inferior peoples would have to, you know, fall before them. And it absolutely helps lay the groundwork for genocide. Yeah. I think we all, uh, remember, um, where we were, uh, when we saw Joel and Ethan Cohen's, uh, film adaptation of no country for old men. I remember when the movie ended, um, I did. I just didn't talk for five minutes because <laughs> one, I was just processing what happened to me. Um, and then two, I was just, you know, there, there's something about Cormac McCarthy's writing and vision of the world that is, you know, at once biblical and, you know, kind of grand, but at the same time also horrifying and bloody and, you know, seemingly arbitrary death is around every corner. Um, one of my, I mean, I, that led me to, kind of get into his bibliography and uh or his his uh yeah his 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 set of books and i i think the one that stuck with me and it sticks with a lot of people is is blood meridian uh which is just this i i, I don't know how to describe it other than saying almost uh biblical is, is i don't know why i keep coming back to that word but you probably know what i mean uh, oh sure this, he has this, this he has this biblical cadence to his language he's he's uh I absolutely know what you mean. And so I would, would you say that uh, Cormac McCarthy's work, I mean, not all of it, but a lot of the ones that we're probably both thinking about, like Blood Meridian, are these kind of the best fictional representations of, of what these kind of, you know, borderlands were, uh, you know, in the Comanche Wars or in the periods after the Mexican-American War when it was kind of just, a, you know, a free-for-all of, of blood and conquering and <laughs> I, I mean would you say that's his his books kind of capture that uh that milieu or that that epoch in 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 western history yeah i uh well i i love his books um and um blood meridian is my i don't know if it's my favorite just because it is so hard right it's so um it's so grim it's so kind of soul crushing that book um but I do think it's a masterpiece. And um, I first read 
uh, Blood Meridian riding on a bus uh, through northern Mexico when I was there doing research. Um, and I didn't yet really know much. Um, I mean, I knew a little bit, but I was at kind of the beginning of the process of, of researching my book when I first read it. And I was blown away by it. Um, and I, I, I honestly thought that, you know, it had a certain fantastic quality to it that made it um, amazing, but also unlikely. Um, and then as I learned more about this history and did all this work on this same period, you know, Blood Meridian is really about the late 1840s and early 1850s. As I did more work and I read uh, a lot of the sources that I know that McCartney, uh, McCarthy drew upon in order to write that book, I began to be more and more impressed with the degree to which he really did his homework. And he um, uh, was really representing things um, uh, that uh, has have grounding in the primary sources. Not everything, obviously, um, but uh, you know, for example, he uses a really truly remarkable book by a man named Samuel Chamberlain called My Confession. Um, and Chamberlain uh, wrote so there's all kinds of memoirs of the of the U.S. Mexican War, um, and most of them are, um, you know they're all marked by their author's own perspectives and experiences, of course. Um, a lot of them are, you know, kind of boringly ya-ya nationalistic and, and kind of un, unconvincing in many ways. Um, Chamberlain was fascinated by and, and very weirdly totally willing to talk about uh, the grimiest, worst, terrible parts of the war, massacres, sexual violence, um, intimidation, um, you know, the terror that, that uh, American troops and, and volunteers often inflicted on, um, you know, the local people in northern Mexico. Uh, and also the, you know, I mean, he's not romanticizing the other side either. So there's just a lot of violence and a lot of um, uh, uh, grim stuff in that book. And McCart McCarthy just mined it like an absolute master uh, to help populate his own story with things that uh, have some basis in fact. So, um, to my knowledge, it is the best book ever written about this particular period in Mexico's history in sort of the, the U.S.-Mexican borderlands um, in that extremely dark, grim, uh, very hateful uh, period of history. And uh, Hinky just captured it um, with incredible force and power. Yeah, I mean, all the scenes with the judge, I mean, he's just this, I, I you know, go back and forth what he's meant to represent. I mean, I think he's a character kind of in the, you know, Harold Bloom vein of like a character who's his own person uh, and, you know, beyond the story. But, you know, I often think about, you know, what, what, uh, you know, there's this, sometimes it's like when you're reading poetry, you know, you, you, you have this temptation to want to just define it. You know, this means this. You know, yeah. the judge is a metaphor for this, you know, as opposed to just, you know, a, a whole mix of uh, characteristics. But how do you, how do you, you know, I, I, I can talk about Cormac for a long time, but how do you, how do you look at the judge and, and what he represents? I know I'm, I know I'm well, digging into I, this. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's such no, a, it's a, great, it's a rich topic. It's, it is. And it's such an incredible book. Um, I don't think, like you, I am kind of skeptical of the idea that the judge represents any single thing. Um, I think that um, 
in you know the hands of an author uh, with the kind of power and imagination like Cormac McCarthy that that characters, especially the most fully realized characters like the judge, do become something far bigger than any kind of single characteristic or force or uh, a quality that is meant to represent. Um, and, you know, one of the things that makes him such a compelling character is this extremely disturbing mix of erudition and um, uh, eloquence and, um, uh, you know, kind of rapt attention to the details of the world around him and the people that are around him. Um, and this kind of like intense discernment of uh, people's characters and <laughs> destinies and, and this uh, very deeply biblical language and everything combined with um, this really um, repellent disregard for human life, uh, celebration in mayhem and murder and, and, and killing. There's that one unforgettable scene where he is uh, sort of cooing a, a, an infant on his lap that had survived one of their horrible massacres that him and his gang had perpetrated. Um, and then, you know, um, whatever, a few minutes later, the, the kid sees that the child's lying there dead, um, you know, and, and, and there's just this, it's the juxtaposition of these qualities that, you know, we are, um, have long uh, been taught were admirable and virtuous and, and, and venerable with this absolute heartlessness um, uh, and, you know, even sadism. Uh, and you could make an argument that at our worst, um, Americans, when we are, um, you know, crafting these big narratives and these big missions that we're going to um, run over other people, that, um, you know, we cloak this heartlessness in this, all these virtuous stories and this high eloquence. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just predatory and, and bloody like the judge. So... I don't know. He he's such a fascinating character that that I think uh, any any attempt to describe what he's supposed to represent is only going to be able to scratch out a little bit of the surface. Yeah, I um I'm I'm trying to remember the name. It's it's on uh it's on uh, it's one of those books that it's on my list to read. And it just came out this this last week, and I'm forgetting the name. Um, but it's uh it's about kind of uh the untold tales of women in war. Um, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now. Um, but uh, just kind of this idea of collateral damage and this kind of, you know, what you're saying, which is uh, these conquerors or, you know, conquistadors or explorers or whatever you want to call them, you know, and, and, and kind of idealizing the, the grandeur of the, the journey. But, you know, I, I think the people's whose story, you know, they're often, we often have these tales of them written from their perspective or from their perspective and these idealized journeys. Um, but oftentimes they're much more, you know, cloaked in death and blood. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to talk, you know, two, two kind of last questions to wrap up today. Um, the first one is uh, talking about, you know, we talked about transnational, but I want to talk about borderlands for a second. Um, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, borderlands are something, I, I mean, if you just go on Netflix, you know, there's so many like narco shows and there's all these, you know, you know, all these kind of romanticizations or, you know, dystopias of, 
these kind of borderland places as being these, you know, lands of without law or rule or order or something. Um, how, do, how do you look at borderlands and how, how does that, uh, how is border, looking at through the lens of the borderlands, how does that help you uh, think about history? Um, well, you know, I, so I do think borderlands are totally fascinating places to um, ask historical questions and to read about and think about and learn about. And to my way of thinking, there's something very distinctive and important that makes a borderland a borderland. And that is that it is a space that is controlled by more than one polity, right? More than one authority. Uh, it doesn't have to be a state, right? Um, you could certainly look in places all across the continent of North America prior to the 20th century where uh, rival indigenous nations um, kind of had territory that rubbed up against each other or that they were contending for between one another. And that was absolutely a borderland just as well as the U.S.-Mexican borderland is. Um, but what makes them interesting to me is that, you know, when spaces are controlled by a single authority, then there is a higher power that people can appeal to to settle disputes. When you don't have that, then all of a sudden different kinds of dynamics kick in and the lines of authority are muddy and um, conflicts can take on a certain kind of special force and escalate in ways that are less common in places that are where there's a clear, you know, apex authority. So what I like about borderlands is that quality, right? I, the phrase I use is that they're zones of plural sovereignty. Um, and that's what makes them, that was what gives them their distinctive quality. And you can find them all throughout history and all over the world. Um, now in the United States, we usually hear the term borderland and we think of a specific place, right? We think of the U.S.-Mexican borderlands. We don't so much think about Canada and U.S., for example, or other places around the world. Um, and there is a lurid, commodified um, uh, desire uh, in the United States to see the U.S.-Mexican borderlands as a place of spectacular depravity and violence. And um, again, it really sells, right? Just like you said, there's all kinds of shows that one can read, all kinds of books, um, uh, all kinds of miniseries and movies and, and corridos and, you know, all kinds of stuff that we could look at that is this um, intense fascination with the violence that, that happens on the border. And, you know, there is violence on the border. I'm not suggesting that there's not. But from my perspective, and I, I mean, I, I write about it, right? So it's, uh, I'm as interested in it, in it as anybody else. Um, but I also recognize that our, we can over-concentrate on that aspect of life in the borderlands. And in the process, what we do is we miss the reality for most people who live there. You know, most people who live along the borderlands are not constantly dealing with cartel violence and femicides and torture and uh, inter-ethnic, you know, murders and, um, uh, you know, and so forth. They are living their lives, raising their families, going to work, crossing the border daily as, as we began the interview with. Um, and they're just living lives um, um, uh, that are far more, uh, you know, mundane than these really um, sensationalistic um, narratives would have us believe. 
And I think that's part of the reason that um, we have politicians that are able to weaponize that kind of pre-existing idea, right? The only way that we're going to be able to hold back the chaos is by building a giant wall, right? Because it's, everyone knows that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's pure violence, you know, savage violence that's spilling north across the border. And it's um, a total fantasy, uh, but it's a very useful fantasy for, um, it's been extremely useful for Trump and the Republicans. It's very useful for the contractors that are making money off of building this absurd wall. Um, and it's really useful for Hollywood producers, <laughs> right? And Netflix executives. Uh, yeah. But I think that it's overdone. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else in loving Sicario and, and movies like that. I mean, it's just... It's it's fun, you know, in part because you know we we do live kind of <laughs> pretty peaceful, mundane lives, and there's something you know for the same reason that we read about Jedediah Smith, you know, having his head nearly pulled off by a grizzly bear, you know, and it's 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 fascinating, and like we watch movies like The Revenant, and it's just it draws us into the you know this this world that's gone in some ways. Um, yeah. But but speaking of apocalypse. Um, and, uh, you know, a world gone. Uh, I'm sure you were, as a person of the Bay Area, uh, you know, felt in some ways a, a world leaving you as you watched that Blade Runner 2049 sun uh, over California as we've experienced the fires and everything else that's going on. And I, I want to end by kind of giving, you know, as a historian, you rarely get to use your crystal ball. Um, and so I, I just wanted to talk to you about, you know, kind of these movements, you know, where California is right now, just, uh, you know, as a, as a citizen. Um, and I, you know, I've been hearing, I don't know if they're, you know, journalists that I talk to. Um, I, and I actually was talking to a realtor recently about this, about, you know, these kind of, you know, this exodus of California, that California is just uh, inherently unstable. And, you know, part of that's political. People just want to you know, if it's a democratically run state, they want to just make it look like it's unstable as opposed to, you know, the economic powerhouse that pays for most of the country's welfare payments. Um, but um, I think my question to you is ultimately, um, where do you think California is right now? And do you think we're in kind of a, a, a tipping point in terms of uh, California being unstable? And do you think people are going to leave? Well, uh, I can tell you that I've never, I, I've lived here now for about 12 years, I guess, 11 or 12 years. Um, and I'm, you know, perpetually grateful that I get to live out here. And those uh, two or three weeks when the smoke was at its worst um, was the first time since I've lived here that I thought, wow, I, I don't know if I want to live here anymore. <laughs> However, um, I can also tell you that the first truly clean day that we had where the air was sweet and the wind was blowing uh, and you were able to take, go outside and go outside with your kids and, and smell the air and, and feel grateful for it, um, I didn't feel like that anymore. <laughs> so I think that, you know, California is a giant place. There's always people coming and going. Um, there's a reason that uh, people flock to California. Um, the fires definitely put a, 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 a different face on the state for part of the year. But you know, the magic of California is still here. Um, you know, uh, you can, this is a place where I can go surfing 
uh, in the morning and drive up and then the next day be skiing, you know, um, the, the, the great cities, the incredible diversity, the um, unbelievable food, um, you know, and, and it's a place where I think worth sort of staying and, and, and fighting for, because of course, a lot of people in California, um, uh, a, a gigantic number of people in California are suffering intensely but they're suffering intensely in many places around the country. And this is the other thing I think about this whole discourse about the emptying out of California, how it's the end of the California dream and so forth is that, you know, global warming is not confined to California. Uh, I'm from Colorado and forest fires there are becoming worse and worse and worse. Uh, the, uh, you know, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, uh, the whole Gulf South, um, all the projections are that, you know, life is going to become extremely difficult in these places in the coming decades. And um, uh, so I'm a little skeptical of the idea that uh, California is going to be, unique, be uniquely transformed because of all these crises, because I think, you know, we're all in the same boat. And what we need to do is use this as a wake up call to do something meaningful about the predicament that we find ourselves in and uh, to utterly reject the profoundly cynical. And I think, uh, you know, it's not a word I, I, I use almost ever, but I'll say it deeply evil um, politics of denying the reality of climate change and consigning these future generations to utter misery. Um, and we have to totally reject that and come together as a country to try to stop that. But I, I, I mean, California, is a very special place and I'm pretty skeptical of the uh, notion that uh, the story's over in California. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, during, during troubled times, you know, uh, that's when people just, our discourse gets so much wilder, uh, so much more hyperbolic um, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. One day these the, the the fires are all going to end at some point. I mean, there's obviously there's one that's just started in in Napa recently that's that's quite dramatic. And so I I know there's still stuff going on, but like you know, all things pass, you know. And I think uh, on the whole, um, you know, our state produces you know some technology that changes the world. You know, entertainment that changes the world. We have the best hire. You know, you work for, and we have the best. A public higher education system in the world. I mean, you know, these, these things um, are not small and they're important. And absolutely. You know, and I, absolutely. I love, and I love that I get to be in a state where, um, you know, my tax dollars go to support something, you know, not subsidies for some, some large ag business or whatever, but actually go to support, you know, public education, which, you know, I, I was very excited. I, I recently talked with a, another uh, uh, professor at UC Santa Barbara, and we were talking about um, the, you know, the new, the new president of the UC system, as well as, you know, this being the first year that uh, uh, Latinx students are kind of the majority incoming class to the UC system um, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of really positive things going on and I don't want to, you know, ignore the negative things that are going on, but I think, there's got to be some balance. I do want to end though uh, with uh, any book recommendations. Um, so I, I love to end here because um, I, I say this many times and I'm going to say it again now that, you know, uh, uh, podcasts are kind of like a granola bar um, and uh, books are like a really nutritious salad. You know, I mean, granola bars are great, but if you only eat granola bars, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you're not going to be really all that healthy. So I, 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 I like to 
push people in the direction of books. And so if beyond Blood Meridian, which we talked about, you know, which if you haven't read, you should just stop this right now and go read that. Uh, beyond Blood Meridian, are there any book recommendations about borderlands or a transnational history or just Western history that uh, you think, uh, you know, our audience would be interested in? Oh, wow. So I know many. it's a big question. Yeah. Um, so this is in, I'm just gonna, in the spirit in which you asked this question, I'm going to be completely spontaneous and just grab a couple that are on the top of my head. Okay. Um, uh, Borderlands history. So um, from my perspective, people who are eager to um, begin to understand the history of the Borderlands could do, uh, would be well served by beginning with the work of the great late historian David J. Weber. Um, uh, David wrote wonderful, wonderful books. And he was the, the absolute dean of the field uh, when he died several years ago. Um, and he was, uh, among his many gifts, he was a, a true master at um, having read and understood the vast, vast sea of literature out there on specialized topics and then being able to synthesize it into engaging, compelling, and truly authoritative narratives. And um, he, he wrote many books, but the two that I would recommend in particular, uh, he wrote a book called The Spanish Frontier in North America, which is just as it sounds, it's a history of um, uh, uh, the Spanish era in, Mex in, in North America above Mexico until 1821. And then he wrote another book called The Mexican Frontier, which is all about the Mexican era in uh, the American Southwest, including California. And it's an older book now, um, but, and it's been, in its particulars, it's been surpassed by all kinds of specialized literature, but I still think it's hard to beat as a sort of first um, real deep um, uh, uh, dive into or introduction to the broad history of these periods um, when they were under Spanish and Mexican rule. Um, Colonial California, a book I love and always am happy to recommend, and I'm sure you know it. Um, uh, Children of Coyote, Missionaries of St. Francis by Steve Hackle, uh, which I think is, you know, probably the best book um, that we have on the, the mission era in California. Um, it's just a masterwork by a historian who has done um, just a tremendous amount to ad advance our understanding of colonial California uh, through remarkable, remarkable data projects uh, using mis mission records and other kinds of records. Um, so Steve Hackle's work, I think, is just tremendous, and, and it's hard to begin to understand uh, California prior to 1848 without grappling with his work. Um, and another uh, kind of more intimate book that I think is a just a lovely, powerful book on California that um, I think your your listeners would all enjoy is a book um, by the late historian Louise Publes. It's called The Father of All. Uh, it's about the De La Guerra family uh, in, in Mexican California. And it's just a wonderful reconstruction of um, the life of this relatively prominent Californian family. Um, in this tumultuous period of the, of the state's history. Well, those are some great book recommendations. Um, I, 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 I'm definitely familiar with a few of them. I have not heard of this, uh, The Father of All, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to explore that. I, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, how's, how's distance learning going for you so far? 
I hope my students are, are uh, enjoying it more. Well, for me, the hard part is I don't, so I am teaching a big lecture class. Um, there's about 280 students or something, but all the lectures are asynchronous. So I record them in advance. And um, yeah, it's a, uh, uh, it's, it's, the, it's not the most fun I've ever had teaching, right? I mean, you, you, you know this, you, you, you feed off your students' energy. You want to see them and be able to see them interact optimally in person, but, but at least, you know, uh, on the screen. And I don't even get that. I'm just staring at my little green dot at the top of my computer screen. So that's not been, um, been especially fun, and I'm very eager to get back in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I it, it is it is a challenge to pay attention uh, when, especially when you're watching a lecture on a, a computer screen. When you know one when ESPN or whatever is one click away, uh, it, it it can be it can be challenging. I I will embarrassingly confess that I, you know, so my my graduate work is in religion, and I had this uh, you know nice wonderful. Uh, uh, Hebrew Bible professor that he would just, he would just read, read his lecture to us. And I had my computer and I remember watching, uh, you know, I had a night class from seven to 10 and I watched a whole Golden State Warriors game in that class. Uh, and I am, I embarrassingly admit that now, but you know, I do think uh, you're right. You know, it's the job, uh, you know, ultimately I think teachers are, you know, we, it, part of it is the physical presence and part of it is the desire to engage, um, with the students. Um, and doing distance learning just makes that almost impossible, but we don't, we don't need to go any further than that. I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this, this, today was full of confessions. I, don't, I didn't expect this, but in, in any case, I, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, I, where can people find your books and your work if they want to read more about, uh, your stuff? Well, um, so my book, War of a Thousand Deserts, uh, is available at uh, probably the easiest place to get it, be Amazon. Um, and uh, I'm the co-author on a, a textbook, um, U.S. history textbook, that um, I like and, and uh, have enjoyed working on. But I think, you know, the, the main thing I would recommend would be that book, The, the War of a Thousand Deserts. That's, that's where I talk about these ideas. Uh, that I discussed today on the show about the way that Native peoples influenced the U.S.-Mexican War. All right. On that note, have a wonderful afternoon, and thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Jordan. I really enjoyed talking to you. Take care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Brian. Again, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do that by either making a financial contribution on Patreon or uh, by giving us a rating and review. It really matters. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will come out on Monday on the Bear Flag Revolt, where I will make the case that maybe it's time to look at our state flag and ask if it's time to make a change. Mm -hmm.